0: Dr. Steve Weitzman is a scholar in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania, and his research specializes in the Hebrew Bible, ancient Judaism, and the origins of Jewish culture. I still can't believe, honestly, that people like this exist. He is incredibly knowledgeable, I mean deeply, deeply knowledgeable. His insights ranged thousands of years in this conversation alone, and he had this wonderful generosity to him. He was, after all, willing to talk to me for over an hour. I had a great conversation with him, and I'm, I'm entirely sincere in saying that I can't wait for the next opportunity to talk with him again. Without further introduction, I give you Dr. Steve Weitzman. Are
1: you a native Philadelphia?
0: I grew up in South Jersey, so I'm just pretending.
1: Me too. I'm from California, so I'm really
0: pretending. <laughs> we're in California?
1: I'm from Los Angeles, from the San Fernando Valley.
0: Oh, so cool! How'd you get out here?
1: Um, my wife is from Philadelphia. Okay. So apparently, when you marry someone from Philadelphia, you're
0: doomed to move to. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. Okay. So uh, I'm going to give you a little introduction, excuse my voice. Uh, I'll give you a little introduction when I actually go to post the thing. Um, and I'll send it to you, I, I probably have about eight family members who just feel guilty enough to, to listen to the podcast. So you don't have to worry about it's easier to send through Spotify. So I'll just send it to you. Uh, and if you, if you have any for whatever reason, want to take it down, I'll take it down, down. as soon as you say, but I will I won't send it to anybody. Um, until I get the okay from you, if that's all right.
1: That's good. I mean, I don't like hearing my own voice, so I may not listen to it. But uh, <laughs> that's uh, I'm happy to have a conversation with you. Great. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, perfect. Uh, and like I said, I'll give you a little introduction, but I, I guess I'd be really curious to sit just to hear you say what, what you do. And I could read the titles um, on the Penn website, but I'm not exactly sure what all of them mean. Uh, so maybe, maybe whatever your highlights of your own of your own job title is.
1: So I am a a scholar of religious studies and Jewish studies. I um, began my career focused on the study of the ancient Jewish world, which includes the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, but also the Jewish culture that developed in the centuries after the Bible, the period of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and um, the period that produced Christianity as well as Um, Judaism as we know it today and um, I um, am interested in also the kind of history of how the Bible has kind of shaped the way people think and how they express themselves and literature and um, um, how the Bible's influenced culture so I'm interested in kind of the afterlife of the Bible so those are the that's the kind of core of my interest. Um, I also direct a center in the, uh, for, the, for, the, for the study of, of Jewish experience and Jewish history and culture called the Katz Center for Advanced Judaic Studies at the University of Penn, at Pennsylvania. So I, part of my life is kind of administrative, and part of it is scholarly, and part of it is teaching.
0: Very cool. Um, just to maybe contextualize all of my questions, and I think I said this in the email, I'm coming from a... What I might argue argue later is like sort of a cultural, uh, culturally Catholic background, and I teach in a Catholic school currently. Um, but I've become inter- really recently interested, interested, excuse me, in uh, sort of the origins of religions in general. But first, um, the one that I was closest to, and I found that the more the more that I got into the origin of Christianity and Catholicism. I was just reading the Old Testament, <laughs> uh, and I reached out to, I talked to a few different people, uh, but I'm interested in, in sort of uh, digging up deeper and deeper into that. So, I guess to start us off, I was teaching a class, and I, I teach one section, an off section of English, and I, there was some Christian allusion. Uh, and I was asking a question. There was this kid in class who normally wouldn't say anything. And if he did, he he would be taking a risk and I'd have to be really careful about how I told him he was wrong and that kind of thing. And he, he sort of shouted out, it's like a church history question. And he, he shouted out the council of Nicaea. And it was kind of this hilarious joke when I realized that it definitely wasn't right, but I was like, how does he know what that is? And I was like, oh, that, that must be the one answer he knows to, to be often right in his church history class. <laughs> and, I, and I sort of was talking to him about it later, and I was like, this, yeah, right. It's probably right most of the time in his other class. And I found out recently that there was a Council of Jomnia, uh, and I never heard of this. So I sometimes look at the Council of Nicaea as something that would have in part determined the canonical Texts of the Christian tradition. Is it is it the Council of Jamnia that determines some of the canonical texts of the of the Hebrew Bible? Am I understanding that correctly?
1: So that um, that was once a view, but what what people realize, what scholars realize, is that the way um, you know a lot of the scholars that were studying ancient Judaism were Christian, and and what was happening was that they were. Taking what they knew about Christian history and kind of projecting it on the Jewish history, and so the common that tradition. That, yeah, I mean, we all do that. We all take what we're familiar with and project it onto onto things that we're less familiar with. And so the whole idea that there are these like major decisions about what was in the Bible or you know what is the proper thing to believe that these were made by councils. Mm. Um, on, on the model of, you know, when we think of uh, kind of the formative age of kind of Christian doctrine, um, that's kind of projecting Christian history onto Jewish history. And it didn't really work that way. Interesting. So it wasn't really, um, that's not how the Hebrew Bible came to be. Hmm. Um, it wasn't a decision of a body of experts. Um, it got a longer history than that. Um, and the story of the New Testament and how that became how there came to be a Christian Bible is a different story than the story of how there came to be a Jewish
0: Bible. Sure. So I guess that might have answered my question, but is the Council of Jamnia as decisive? um, Or or is there any parallel there?
1: Um, What did it decide? No. (laughs) No. So the... uh... Well, it's a hard to answer that question. It's, it's a really good question because it's a hard question. So we know it wasn't decided by a council of rabbis.
0: Mm.
1: Um, you know, there was a few debates about a few books. You know, there's a few books in the Bible that are were puzzling to the kind of the rabbis. You know, one of them is the book of Ecclesiastes, or Kohelet Hebrew, and if you read that book, it's like very different from the other books in the Hebrew Bible. I mean, the guy is, whoever wrote that book is, um, questioning things that other difficult books take for granted as part of their understanding of God. Um, and there's a few other books like that that where there are things in it that are surprising and you can't figure out why they're, why did this book get into the Bible? So, you know, there was some debate about the rabbis about those kind of books, but, um, the core of the hebrew bible was formed much earlier and you know the core of it which is the five books of moses um you know what jews refer to as the torah the torah the torah um it was we don't even know exactly how it became part of the bible but it was hundreds of years before the rabbis before the council of john yeah, before all that so it's kind of a longer story and it's not it's not a, it's not the same kind of story as for the
0: Testament. Interesting. Do you have your own instincts about how something like Ecclesiastes ended up in the Old Testament? Or in the Hebrew Bible, um, excuse me? Yeah, it's a really, I don't think anybody's actually
1: asked me that question before. So, I mean, it's, I, mean one, there, there, we, I know a little bit of the process. So, um, everything that made it into the Bible, um, into the Jewish Bible, um, it had to meet some criteria. One of those criteria is it had to be revealed through a prophet. So, um, but a lot of the biblical books, you know, some of them identify the prophet, but some of them don't. So, um, Ecclesiastes made it in because it was attributed to King Solomon Hmm. and, uh, King Solomon, I don't think he was the actual author, but it was attributed to him along with the book of Proverbs. Um, and, the, and the book of Song of Songs and the Song of Songs, by the way, is another surprising Puzzling book because if you read it without preconceptions It's a very erotic love song. Like, what is this doing in the Hebrew Bible? Um, but it was attributed to King Solomon and Jews and then later Christians as well came to read it as an allegory They they read it not literally, but they read it as a kind of symbol of God's God's love for Israel or God's love for the church. Um, So those three books, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Song of Songs, were attributed to King Solomon, who was considered one of these prophets um, of the Hebrew Bible. King David was credited with the book of Psalms. Um, The books of Samuel were attributed to the prophet Samuel. So every book in the Hebrew Bible has to be attached to some prophet.
0: I didn't know that. Uh, Does does Ecclesiastes stand out in the canon of the Hebrew Bible for being decided to not be read literally? Are the other books read literally by default, or is it taken book by book?
1: So the book I was referring to that was read, read allegorically or symbolically is the Song of Songs. okay sorry and um, well here's the thing and this is true of Christianity as well as Judaism there's like many different ways to read these books sure so um, Christians really developed what we call allegorical interpretation so allegorical interpretation is where you basically believe the Bible has kind of two levels of meaning the kind of surface literal meaning and a deeper symbolic meaning. And there were Jews who read the Bible that way, but Christians really picked up on that and really, really developed it. People like Origen, um, a third century Christian scholar and interpreter, you know, really, you know, really, really developed allegorical interpretation. So Jews don't really read, Jews they don't really read the Bible allegorically, um, but they have other ways of reading it that I don't think you or I would call literal. Mm. Um, you know, because, you know, I don't know what you mean by that term, but what I mean, when I hear the, hear the word literal, I mean somebody who's trying to, like, just read it word for word, what's, you know, take it on face value, you know, not try to add to the text or, you know, import ideas into the text, but just try to take the text, what you know, on its own terms. Just don't read it that way. Uh, uh, not in the way that you or I might think of literal, so... They have their own way of reading that's called Midrash, um, which is a kind of um, a style of interpretation that was developed by ancient rabbis. And that, you know, it takes a little bit of explaining to get used to that. But that's different from allegory Christians developed and Christians developed another kind of interpretation called typology, um, which, you know, we can talk about if you're interested. And so there's no there's no kind of one way to read the Bible in either community.
0: Yeah, I'm fascinated. What, what is typology, and what was the up? Uh, I I didn't hear the uh, the the type that the ancient rabbis
1: rabbis. That's called. That's the word uh, midrash, which is spelled M I D R A S H. It's a Hebrew word. It comes from a word that means kind of investigate. Hmm. And um, if you want to understand how Jews today understand the Bible, you First of all, I need to know they don't read it literally. Okay. They read it through this technique called Midrash, um, which is um, a very creative, interesting, um, mode of interpretation that really kind of takes little hints in the Bible and really kind of squeezes them for everything they mean. Hmm. Squeezes the little details for everything they mean. And Jews do, I mean, it depends on what you mean by literal, but you, you know, an observant Jew is trying to follow the laws that are in the Hebrew Bible. But those laws that are in the Hebrew Bible, in and the, and the five books of Moses, are being understood through Midrash. Through this kind of interpretive technique. So, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to talk to anybody about keeping kosher, but keeping kosher, you know, it's kind of special dietary rules some of them come from the Bible but a lot of them do not you know keeping kosher for example you would not eat a cheeseburger and there's nothing about cheeseburgers in the five books of Moses I can promise you that there's nothing about pepperoni pizza Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that are part of keeping kosher that come through the way the rabbis interpreted the Bible as opposed to just coming straight out of the Bible Um, so that's midrash typology by the way i'm sorry if i'm going on too long no this is this is great um i'm sorry
0: that the lighting keeps changing me
1: oh no problem no i don't that's
0: fine
1: um <laughs> apology is a, is a mode of interpretation developed by christians that connects the old testament to the new testament and basically the idea is to read the old testament as a foreshadowing of the new testament And to look for details in the hebrew bible especially the five books of moses that kind of correspond to the life of jesus or the or the or the crucifixion the death of jesus so you know reading for example the story of cain and abel where cain you know these two brothers they were the sons of adam and eve and cain murders abel and you know, one type typological reading that early Christians developed was that you know Abel was a kind of anticipation or foreshadowing of Christ who was also killed. So kind of looking for clues in the five books of Moses or other biblical books that are where you can read them as kind of a foreshadowing or kind of a, a preview of what's going to happen in the New Testament. So that's another kind of Christian interpretation that develops very early on and that Becomes very important for how Christians understand the Bible.
0: Yeah, and I'm I'm not a New Testament scholar, but I would I would imagine some people might argue that some of the New Testament, if not much of it, was written that way, as if to refer back.
1: That's absolutely true. So if you read the Gospels, if you read um, the Gospel of John. Yeah. And you read about John's, you know, Jesus' miracles. Some of the miracles are similar to the miracles that Moses does. And so you're right that the author of that, you know, the way he understood Jesus, he saw him as kind of a second Moses. Um, so that's true. But typology came later. And um, it's the idea that the, the, the prophets of, that wrote the Hebrew Bible. God revealed to them a kind of glimpse of what was going to come. Interesting, and they kind of encoded that into what they wrote, and gave kind of hints that Christians can um, recognize and draw the two testaments together in that way.
0: Yeah, and I'm I'm sorry, I've, I've I've probably seven or eight different strings I want to pull on here, uh, sure. so I'm gonna I might meander back successfully or not. This question of typology brings up for me this idea, or, or I start to wonder: Is there a difference between theologians who are scholars and scholars who aren't um, religiously motivated at all, and might might not have any problem saying, you know, the author of this book was a little heavy-handed referring to this, and almost seems like they might have been compensating for something. Where the great, yeah. sorry yeah maybe just to punctuate that question, whereas the early Christian scholarship seems like it's going to clearly be theological. If that if that isn't obvious, um, where people who might be doing scholarship today might be more interested in um, yeah. n- not trying to, to be systematically theological. If that makes any sense,
1: uh, it does make sense, and it's a really important uh, issue to bring up. So, um, today, kind of working backward from today, you have scholars that are coming from within a religious community who believe the Bible is the Word of God, believe in God, believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and who are using scholarship to understand what God was trying to communicate through the Bible. So, you have a lot of scholars like that. Probably the majority of scholars are like that. Hmm. Uh, but then you have another group of scholars, and these scholars tend to—you find these scholars at places like Pan and universe, secular universities—that um, you know they—they may be religious in their personal life, but as scholars, they are taking the methods uh, that scholars use to study Shakespeare, or scholars use to study Homer, or scholars use to study any text. Just taking those methods and applying them to the Bible, essentially treating the Bible as a humanly authored document written by human beings who lived in a particular time and place, and saying, so, you know, we want to you know, we want to understand what those authors are trying to say. So, in order to do that, we need to kind of put them in there in their environment that they were writing in, and that means studying the ancient languages and learning about the history, and um, basically. Uh, approaching the Bible in the way you would approach any other any humanly authored document. Hmm. So you know that is that is the method that's the approach I was trained in. Um, that's my orientation, but that doesn't mean I'm anti-religious. It doesn't mean that I'm not respectful of people who read the Bible from a religious perspective. I want to understand how those people understand the text. My wife is a rabbi. She's, you know, a leader in the religious community. Um, so it's not like they're necessarily at odds with each other, but they do have these different approaches.
0: Interesting. To bring to it. Uh, should, should it not surprise me that so many are in the former category that you described? I would imagine that seems problematic that the majority of scholars, uh, that we depend on the minority of scholars to be, for lack of a better word, objective.
1: So, um, I mean, it's worth bearing in mind that 80% of the world's population still identifies as religious. So that's a big, there's a big 20% is a big minority that identifies as secular, sure. but 80% still identify, you know, there's, you know, I think a 2 billion Christians in the world. There's a billion Muslims in the world. That's roughly half of the population right there. Just those two religious communities. So, you know, because the, the majority of the world's population still identifies as religious, the majority of people who care about the Bible enough to study it are also coming from a religious perspective. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of people who are secular, too, but, um, you know, they're concentrated in Western Europe and the United States, but the Bible is important in Africa, the Bible is important in Latin America, the Bible is important, you know, to a lot of religious Christians in America. So, you know, uh, just by sheer demographics, they're the majority, but um, the secular approach is very consequential. Basically the secular world that we know today, now people, you know, have different opinions about whether the secular world is good or bad, but whether it's good or bad, the secular world as we know it today depends in part on scholars about 300 years ago Beginning to question religious beliefs about the Bible Hmm. and beginning to question. Hey, why are we why do we believe this text comes from God? Why do we think this comes from Moses? Is it because the text itself says it comes from Moses? No, it actually never says that it comes from Moses. That's a tradition. That we were taught by our, you know, religious authorities and maybe they're just human beings like we are and maybe we can question what they say and that's what began to happen. Um, in the 17th century, and that laid the groundwork, the theological intellectual groundwork, for the emergence of um, the secular world, which is basically, secularism is basically thinking outside of religion, you know, not thinking within a religious framework. Um, that's about 300 years old, and it began with people challenging the traditional view of the Bible.
0: Fascinating. Um, I want to go back to that mid the midrash, and I'm sorry if I'm uh, midrash. Midrash, yeah, midrash. Um, I have a question queued up at some point. It's a lot later down the line about Jewish mysticism, um, and thinking about Judaism as a contemplative tradition. And I know that they they might not be synonymous but i i had the experience of reading ecclesiastes in a bible study at some point in college and i remember reading some of it thinking i could think about we're gonna think about this for one week i could think about this for the rest of my life and some i think even today as i was driving to work i was like oh i don't mind i i thought of ecclesiastes like there, i was like i don't mind like a really cloudy day I sort of like don't mind seasons and I thought about that line like there's a season for everything or at least the sentiment from that um, is is midrash is that interpretation or an interpretive style is that aligned with a contemplative style or the way that you understand that word um, or, or the way at least I might understand that word
1: um. Well, that word, again, that's another word that's kind of coming out of Christian tradition. (laughs) Um, But mysticism is a big, you know, it's very hard to define what mysticism is. And there's different definitions of what mysticism is. So one definition is um, kind of uh, cultivating a direct experience of God as opposed to relying on uh, the Bible for a kind of indirect knowledge of God. Some mystics would be experts in cultivating a kind of very intense, direct, personal, experiential, sensory experience of God. Um, So that's one way of thinking about mysticism and you have that in Christianity Christian mystics will have visions of God or visions of Jesus, you know, and that's a kind of source of insight and knowledge that isn't coming from the Bible. It's coming from experience. It's coming from God revealing uh, or Jesus revealing himself directly to the the mystics. So you have something like that in Judaism too, where um, there are different ways of cultivating a kind of direct uh, experience of of, of, of kind of a manifestation of God um, but mysticism sometimes refers to interpretations of the Bible that kind of uncover a kind of secret level of meaning hmm. um, in the Bible so you know um, the most famous so the word the Hebrew word for mysticism is Kabbalah and the kind of most famous text in Kabbalistic tradition is called the Zohar, which is spelled Z-O-H-A-R. And the Zohar is actually a commentary on the Torah.
0: Hmm.
1: It's a commentary that kind of reads it as a kind of code for um, understanding the true nature of God. It's kind of you have to decipher it to understand what it's saying about God. So I think that might be close to what you mean. Yeah, that's I pretty good. And that is very important, hugely important in Jewish tradition. And it kind of is an offshoot of Midrash. Um, The author of the Zohar was kind of engaging in a mystical Midrashic interpretation of of the Bible. Um, So not all Midrash is mystical, but uh, mystical interpretations usually express themselves through the techniques of Midrashic
0: Given, given that definition of mysticism, would all the prophets have been mystics, insofar as they purport to have a, a direct experience of or with God?
1: There's definitely continuity between uh, biblical prophecy and mysticism, um, and you know, especially if you—I don't know if you read the Book of Ezekiel, but know he has these very strange visions of God that become those visions become very important um, in later mystical tradition Um, so there's a lot of continuity there however um, in Judaism in Jewish tradition prophecy ends with um, shortly after what's called the Babylonian exile 586 BCE
0: Hmm. Um, and
1: the last books in the Jewish Bible, which are um, the books of Haggai and Zechariah, you know, these are like, people don't usually read these books, but they're the latest, latest in terms of uh, history of the books that were written. Um, those are from shortly after the Babylonian exile. And that's, there was kind of a turning point in Jewish tradition at that point where God stops creating prophets and you start getting the interpretation of the Torah. So in Jewish tradition, hmm. mystics, you know, they get insights from God, but it's always kind of in relationship to the Torah, to the Five Books of Moses, and it's kind of a kind of a technique for understanding the Five Books of Moses. So you can't, have, you don't have prophets anymore that produce new biblical books. It ended, and instead you get these mystics who get special insight into the meaning of the biblical books that were already revealed. Does that make sense?
0: It does. Interesting uh the the babylonian exile please excuse my ignorance was the book of psalms written during that time
1: so uh first of all just give you i'll throw out a date real quick so the babylonian exile happens in 586 bce um the babylonians were this empire based in what is now iraq and they um were a very aggressive empire and they expanded into the region uh, where the ancestors of the Jews lived and um, conquered that territory and eventually they destroyed the city of Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple that Solomon had built there. And um, the, the answer to your question is going to depend on whether the person giving the answer is religious or Oh. So a religious answer would be, well, all the-
0: I define that as a good question. That's a good question. So the traditional religious answer is that the book of Psalms were written by King David, who lived a long time before
1: the Babylonian exile. And and some talk about the exile, but that's according to a religious perspective because David was a prophet, he could see into the future. Hmm. From a secular scholarly perspective, uh, the Psalms were written by different people at different times some were written before the exile some were written after the exile and um probably none of them were written by king david
0: according
1: to the secular perspective um so yeah so sorry for that two-part answer to your question
0: no no i appreciated it i think i think the way that i always understood the book of psalms uh was that it was almost designed as a book of home prayer uh during the exile when you couldn't convene in temples. That might be a very CCD.
1: No, some of them were, but some of them were actually written for use in the temple. So some are from the time when the temple was still standing. Yeah. And they were um, used as part of, they were sung in connection to sacrifice, or they were sung, you know, to choose to make a pilgrimage to the temple. They were sung in the context of the pilgrimage, um, or they were sung when people had committed some sin and they were trying to repent so they are part of the kind of the temple ritual and then others were written after the babylonian exile and you know are, are kind of close to what you were describing um eventually they rebuilt the temple there was a second temple um but at that point you know people were writing psalms that were not necessarily meant to be used in the temple
0: interesting Um I I have a question about the temple. I'm thinking about it specifically during the age of antiquity uh where I might be interested in in sort of Christian origins. What was the if you can tell me if that is an area you're interested in or um expert in, but what would if you know, what was the role of the temple at that Point and was it very different from maybe the role of the temple before or after it?
1: So there was um, we're talking about the, like the time of Jesus. Yes. Okay, so that that's the second temple. So there there are two there are two there, there are two temples. There's the first temple, which is the temple that was built by King Solomon and existed in Jerusalem throughout the period uh, of the Kings that descended from David and Solomon. And that temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, uh, during the Babylonian conquest that I was talking about a few minutes ago in 586 BC, then there's, um, 70 years or so. And the Jews are taken into exile in Babylonia. And then the Babylonians are themselves conquered by another group, another empire called the Persian empire led by uh, uh, a ruler named Cyrus, Cyrus the Great. And he allows the Jews to go back from Babylonia back to their homeland. We refer to that region as um, uh, Judea, as it's known by the the Greeks and Romans. And um, they go back there. And after a little while, they are allowed to rebuild a temple in Jerusalem and that is what we call the second temple so the second temple that stood for many hundreds of years and then comes along the roman empire which conquers judea in um, 63 bce so we're talking about uh, 60 years before jesus the romans conquered judea and they install a um a kind of puppet king um, one of whose descendants was a guy named Herod the Great. And Herod was, um, a close ally of the Romans. He was, you know, into, you know, he knew Anthony and Cleopatra, if you know those people from Roman history. And he was very powerful, very wealthy. And he, um use this wealth to kind of build up the second temple, make it much bigger and much more impressive and much more beautiful. And you start to have like more and more pilgrims coming to it, tens of thousands of pilgrims, maybe hundreds of thousands of pilgrims. And it becomes a kind of tourist attraction as well as, you know, the sacred site. So that is a temple that would have existed in the time of Jesus. It would have been this like massive thing, bringing a lot of pilgrims, during the major Jewish festivals, Passover and the other festivals. And, um, the priests who served in the temple, especially the, the, the head priests, um, were very powerful figures. And so that's, that was, that's the temple that Jesus, you know, that existed in Jesus's day. Um, and then, you know, Jesus dies around 30, 30 CE and Paul, you know, writes his letters, and the temple is still standing when Paul's writing his letters. So, Paul would have known that temple too. And um, then what happens is in um, 66 CE there is a big Jewish revolt, a rebellion against the Romans. Uh, it's called the it's called the Jewish Revolt or the Great Revolt, and it lasted with a you know massive revolt, and it lasted for four years. And finally, the Romans defeated the Jews, and they they conquered Jerusalem, and they destroyed the Second Temple. So, um, in secular scholarship about the New Testament, about the Gospels, you know, Paul's letters, the ones that are written by Paul, they come from the time when the Temple is still standing. But there's a debate among scholars about whether the Gospels are written before or after the destruction of the Second Temple. Most, most scholars, I think, would them after the destruction of the Second Temple, but there are scholars who also put them, or at least some of them, before, before the destruction of the Second Temple. So that, that's a real turning point for Judaism, too, um, because, of course, the Jews never rebuilt the Temple. There's not been another Temple. And so a- after the destruction of the Second Temple in 70, the, the leaders who emerge are this group of people who have been calling the rabbis, who are scholars. And they helped help the community adapt to a religious life that was not dependent on the temple anymore. And so in the following centuries, you have the emergence of what we call rabbinic Judaism,
0: Hmm.
1: which is Judaism that is centered, not in the temple anymore, but in the synagogue, and is not centered around the act of sacrifice in the temple anymore, but is centered around the study of the Torah. And it's not centered around the priest anymore, but it's centered around the rabbi. The rabbi is a teacher. Um, so that is a major shift in Judaism today. Or, you know, 95 percent plus of Jews is this rabbinic kind of Judaism, where the central authority is the rabbi and um, there's no temple, there's no sacrifice where the central kind of way of interacting with God is through the interpretation of the Torah.
0: Is it through the interpretation of the Torah through way of the rabbi?
1: Yes. Well, yeah. So I have to uh, take a moment to explain what, a little bit more about what Torah means for rabbinic for Jews. Please. Um,
0: that was a great answer, by the no. way. Thank you very much for that.
1: Oh, sure. Uh and I can I can get carried away so you just have to cut me off if I go
0: on to no by design
1: so um you know I, I said the Torah is a, is a is a Hebrew word it originally means teaching or instruction or um, sometimes you know people understand it's new law but it really is closer to meaning teaching and um, for Jews there's kind of two sides to Torah And one side, Christians kind of know about, and the other side, Christians don't know so much about. So the side they know about is the five books of Moses. And for Jews, um, that is what they call the written Torah. That was a Torah, a revelation from God revealed to Moses that was written down in these five books. And if you were to go to a synagogue on a a Saturday, which is the Sabbath for Jews, You'd see Jews reading from those five books. So that is, you know, part of the Torah. But for for Jews as well, God revealed something else to Moses that they refer to as the Oral Torah. And the Oral Torah is an oral tradition. So it wasn't written down by Moses. It was it was revealed by God orally to Moses, and God passed it on to Joshua orally. And Joshua passed it down orally. To other prophets, and those prophets passed it down, and eventually reached the rabbis. And it's an oral it's originally an oral tradition. But when the rabbis got it, it, a lot of oral traditions they they expand over time. People add to them, and I mean, this is going to be like a strange idea. But the rabbis believed that even though this Torah was expanding and
0: mm. teachers
1: were added to it, it was still it was all what God intended to begin with. So it was still part of the Torah that God revealed to Moses, but it changed and grew over time, like a lot of oral traditions do. And by the time it reaches the rabbis, after the destruction of the Second Temple, it's so massive and so, there's so much to it. Um, and there's, it's so unwieldy that they feel like they need to organize it and eventually write it down. And the the first thing that they write down is called the Mishnah, which is really a kind of um, organizing of the oral Torah that existed at around 200 CE or AD. And then the the rabbis, you know, they kept teaching the Mishnah and they commented on it and and the oral tradition kept developing in that way. And eventually they kind of organized it again as a kind of commentary on the Mishnah called the Talmud. And so the Mishnah and the Talmud are what they are the oral Torah. They are what Jews, they are part of the Torah for Jews. The five books of Moses is part of the Torah, the written Torah. There's also the oral Torah that um, is founded on the Mishnah and the Talmud. So when Jews think about what God revealed at M- outside of Moses, They're not just thinking about the five books of Moses, they're also thinking about this oral tradition, this oral Torah. And, you know, if you want to understand Judaism, you have to understand the oral Torah. It's not enough to read the five books of Moses, you have to study the Talmud, which is not an easy text to study. Um, So that's why, you know, I had
0: to unpack what Torah means for Jews, because there's a lot going on there. No, that's awesome.
1: Now, you know, interestingly, Christians, you know, also believe that Revelation has two sides to it, right? There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. And, you know, the Old Testament is revealed in one historical period, and the New Testament is revealed in a different historical period. So um, both Judaism and Christianity have the idea that the Hebrew Bible, or what Christians call the Old Testament, was not the end of the story. Just the beginning of the story. Sure. Uh, And Jews believe that, too.
0: You, you had a, another awesome answer. You had this great, like, very clear bit where you described um, the difference between sort of, uh, uh, for lack of, uh, Judaism in the temple versus rabbinic Jews. R- is it rabbinic or rabbinic? How am I saying that word? Uh, rabbinic. 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 Uh, That's
1: R-A-B-B-I-N-I-C.
0: A Thank you,
1: a Rabbi. Rabbi, by the way, means it just means um, my my teacher. Teacher, um, and Jesus' disciples called him Rabbi. Yeah, so because he was their rabbi, he was their teacher.
0: So that you describe Judaism in the temple as sort of being um, centered around sacrifices in the temple and I forget what the last part was, and then that sort of shifts to rabbinic Judaism. Do you think, looking back um, as a scholar, that, that there would have necessarily been a shift in the way that they practice? And I, I think about what sacrifices in the temple might have looked like. Um, and I imagine, again, this is, you know, I'm not qualified to, to imagine with any authority, but I imagine that, that would be more experiential where the shift towards rabbinic Judaism seems more pedantic or um, almost academic. Is that is that way too simple?
1: Um, well, you're right that the sacrifice was like a very intense experience, but it was only, uh, most Israelites wouldn't, wouldn't have experienced it it was the, the sacrifices were offered by priests mm. kind of professionals in the temple you know a, you know a, a pilgrim would come with a sacrifice to the temple but they in most cases they hand the sacrifice over to the priests mm. who would go inside the temple and an ordinary Israelite would not be allowed in the temple and the priests would sacrifice the animal inside the temple so it was a very actually kind of an elitist yeah uh, experience that most an ordinary Israelite or two would not have you know experienced directly. Um with the rabbis, you know, so rabbis, you know, now the with the rabbis the the way you relate to God is through interpretation of the Torah. And um so anybody who knows how to read can have access to that kind of experience. Now not everybody knew how to read, that's true. But more people knew how to read than were able to offer a sacrifice in the temple. And so it kind of opened it up a lot. Um, And then Christianity went all the way with it and, you know, spread this um, interest in the Bible beyond the Jewish community. You know, Paul brought it to the whole world as he knew it, the Roman, the Roman empire. Um, And, um, and so Christianity really, Uh, Had a maximalist vision of inclusivity in terms of who gets to participate in this experience, who gets to have a relationship with God. Jews, you know, Jews were um, very—it's like an—it's you know, ancestry is very was very important for Jews. You know, you had to come from a certain ancestry. You had to have certain parents, and. God's relationship was based on a people that was really basically like a big family who were all kind of biologically connected to each other. That's not the situation, you know. I mean, it is somewhat the situation today, but now you have converts to Judaism as well. But Christianity really said, no, it's not based on genealogy. It's not based on ancestry. It's based on you know believing in God in Jesus and believing in God. And so it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or non-Jew or a free person or a slave or doesn't matter what your background. So that's a big change in Christianity introduced. Jews. Um, but Jews also, the rabbis also expanded it by saying, look, this is available to any Jew who learns how to study the text and read it. Um, and also the rabbis also very, very much stress prayer. So Rabbinic Judaism, if you're, an, if you're an observant Jew, you're supposed to pray three times a day that's a direct you know that's talking to god essentially um not that not necessarily that god is talking back but you're talking to god and um so there's a lot of kind of experientiality in in rabbinic
0: judaism too interesting uh i spoke earlier this year with uh dr elaine pagels at princeton she wrote a lot about the, the Gnostic Gospels, or at least that, that was the part that really interested me. Yeah, I mean, she's
1: a giant, by the way, in that field.
0: Yeah, she was extremely generous, as, as you can now relate to, to sitting through this. No, it's fun. Well, <laughs> Glad you think worry. so. So she, she made this really interesting distinction where she was talking about um, the sort of Gnostic texts, or we were really zooming in on, on uh, the Gospel of Thomas. And she sort of made this interesting distinction between the public teachings versus these esoteric teachings and she said and i i again i don't have any authority to, to confirm this but that rabbis at the time would have had more public teachings and more esoteric teachings or esoteric might not be the right word but sort of private teachings and and your the sort of five books of moses and the the oral torah that was passed from moses to Joshua, all the way to the rabbis, um, sort of reminded me of that. Uh, would would that at one point have been sort of private? Or was it the, the rabbi's job to have brought that to the public?
1: So that's a very nice insight. So I think, you know, originally, it was kind of like that, where the five books of Moses was, you know, first of all, by the time the rabbis lived, the five books of Moses had been translated into Greek there were Christians, the rabbis knew that other people out there beyond the Jews were reading this text and finding it interesting. So they they would have thought of that as more public and the oral Torah, which was written in Hebrew and Aramaic, and it's, you can't just pick it up and understand it, that would have, and in fact, they do explicitly describe it as you know what you call a kind of esoteric tradition. Um, so I think that does apply to Uh, at least how some of the ancient rabbis understood it. Now I have to throw in another little footnote here, which is there's another thing about the rabbis that makes it very hard to generalize about them. And that is they were like academics today. Academics today love to debate and they love to kind of try to prove each other wrong. Hmm. And that's how these ancient rabbis were like too. So they, they, they love to argue with each other. They had different points of view, you know they would interpret a verse in different ways opposite ways and they would get on arguments and what's interesting about rabbinic judaism is at a certain point they said you know what it's all valuable it's not that's not so important to figure out you know is this rabbi right or that rabbi wrong it's, there's some wisdom to learn from both sides of the debate so let's preserve it all hmm. and so you know on some issues you have to know you have to decide one way or the other but in a lot of areas, they just preserve multiple points of view that kind of reflect a big debate um, about how to interpret different verses. So, you know, some rabbis thought X, but other rabbis thought Y. Um, and so it's hard to generalize about what they believe for that reason. They did share certain beliefs in common, but, um, but there's a lot of disagreement too. So um, that esoteric um, public distinction does work to some degree um, for the rabbis, but not completely so. And then things do change in a later period. And um, uh, you know, most Jews today, don't have any idea what's in common. Hmm. Uh, American Jews kind of lost a lot of that. Um, Orthodox Jews, you know, that's still important. But um, what we call reformed Jews or conservative Jews, a lot a lot of Jews, are not familiar with that they don't have a chance to study it um, you know they'll know what the word Talmud means maybe but they they won't really have had a chance to study it so um, there's been a lot of changes in Judaism over the over the centuries
0: and and what what was the and you mentioned this earlier and you may have answered this question but is there a relationship between the Talmud and the, the Kabbalah um,
1: not really, so the Talmud refers to it's a it's kind of a part of that Oral Torah.
0: And I thought the Oral Torah was a commentary.
1: There's there's two parts of the Oral Torah. There's, there's the Mishnah, which is the earliest document, and then the Talmud is kind of a commentary on the Mishnah. Okay, I understand. And the Kabbalah and the Zohar, the Kabbalah is just a word for Jewish mysticism.
0: So oh, it's not a
1: specific okay. specific text, but the Zohar is a commentary on the five books of Moses.
0: Okay,
1: but it's not. But it's excellent
0: by
1: the topic. Um, so it gets a little murky pretty quickly.
0: But. No, no, that, that cleared it up for me. I spoke with someone who's an Old Testament scholar in a PhD program currently, uh, who also teaches at the same school I teach at, and he, um. I was, I was asking him about the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'd be really interested to ask you. Um, and I don't know if we have enough time for me to go through all the setup questions. What are the Dead Sea Scrolls? But it, you can you might need to back up and do this for me. But is there a connection between the communities that might have been called Essenes and the Dead Sea Scrolls? Because he, he told me that he had an instinct that, that, that they did, but told me that he would be fiercely debated on that topic. So I'd be interested to hear you weigh in.
1: Yeah, are you okay with another footnote?
0: Totally, totally.
1: A a little background down there. So um, before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, so the Dead Sea Scrolls were kind of discovered in 1947, and it took a couple years to kind of um, study them, and so they kind of became known over the course of the 1950s and took a long time to publish all of them. But before before that discovery, a lot of what we knew about ancient Judaism in the centuries before Jesus uh, and in the century and in the time of Jesus came from a historian named Josephus who was a Jew who, who participated in that Jewish revolt that I mentioned but um, at a critical moment kind of switched side to the Romans and um, moved to Rome and wrote a history of the Jews. Uh, and also wrote an account of that Jewish revolt. And he, so he, he was our main source of information about what Jews believed in that time period. And he describes um, several different, what he calls kind of, well, several kind of Jewish philosophies. are really kind of different um, groups that had different ideas about God and about what the Bible meant and stuff. And they include, the three main ones were the Pharisees. Who we also knew about from the new testament the sadducees who we also knew about from the new testament and then the essenes hmm. and i'm not gonna i don't have time to get into all the differences between these three different groups but the essenes were um had their own distinctive beliefs they they shared property they didn't believe in private property they kind of kind of um shared prop they shared common ownership they um kind of um, lived off on their own. A lot of them, some of them had families, but a lot of them practiced um, um, abstention. They didn't have families or have sex. And they're just a very interesting kind of sect. And so when scholars discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls and they began to decipher them, um, they discovered that they were, a lot of the scrolls were from a, a particular community that probably lived in the Judean wilderness, not far from the Dead Sea, and had a lot of similarities with the Essenes. And so there arose this hypothesis that the Dead Sea Scroll community was an Essene community. But it's but it's a theory because it's not like the community ever, just the Dead Sea Scrolls never say, oh, we're the Essenes. Doesn't use that language for themselves. So there are other scholars who think no, this is like an offshoot of the Sadducees, or this is some other group that Josephus doesn't mention. Um and so there's a lot of debate about it. But I would say the kind of the, the most persuasive hypothesis is the Essene connection. That there really does there's a lot of correspondence between how Josephus describes and, and against the Essenes and the Dense Scroll June.
0: Interesting. Um, I know we're right at time, so I'm not sure exactly how to punctuate. W- what question would be best for that? Um, I have a little bit of interest uh, in a, a Christian theologian or scholar. I'm not sure how to categorize him. René Girard, I don't, I don't know if you're familiar at all with him. He has a particular interest in scapegoats um, as sort of like an anthropological mechanism <laughs> to to deliver us. Oh, Gerard? Gerard? Is yes. That? Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. are you you are familiar. I am familiar with it. Yeah. Um, I guess I'd be interested. I know this is a strange way to end, but maybe in just a minute or two. Uh, can you comment at all? about his overlaying theory that the bible he thinks both parts but you can speak to whichever one you want or both uh is sort of a break from a from a mythic tradition uh, that sided with the with the uh the victimizer where the biblical tradition sides with the victim
1: Yeah, so Gerard, I mean, that's a tough one, to answer in two minutes, because Gerard has developed a theory of religion. In fact, a theory of how human beings work that (laughs) would take some time to explain, and then he applies it to religion. And I am not the best person to represent him because I don't agree. I don't accept any of it. I don't believe it. Really? Um, I've written an article kind of. Oh, cool. Um,
0: what's the name of the article?
1: Uh, I will send you, if you remind me, I will send you a link cool. to the article. Um, because for him, um, the kind of key thing about human beings is they, he uses the language he called what he calls mimesis.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, which is related to our work for me, like an internet meme. So like with the internet meme, you know, what does a meme? a meme is kind of like something that copies itself over and over again so mimesis is kind of from the greek to copy copy and um he believes that human beings are very imitative of one another and you know they you know you know i'll be born and i'll see you do something that gets you something you know i'll see you um you know uh, i don't know playing basketball making a lot of money and so i'll want to co- i want the money too so i'll copy you um, and try to play basketball too. And then we become rivals and there's kind of a competition. Um, and he's kind of sees that dynamic of imitation and rivalry as kind of the source of religion. Um, and ultimately what happens is if you have like two rivals and they're like trying to destroy each other, they're going to mutually destroy each other. You know, it's going to not going to end well. Sure. And so these religious communities came up with sacrifice, kind of killing, killing, instead of like killing each other, they like deflected it onto an animal, if that makes sense. Or a person. Kind of like, um, And then, of course, Jesus is understood as kind of, so the, the sacrifice is kind of a solution to this mimetic competition that he mm. imagines happening. And, you know, instead of, Spiraling in endless violence, communities said, Well, that's we're gonna like project the violence onto this animal and that will resolve the conflict. And, and it doesn't really resolve the conflict, but that's kind of what happens. And so uh, eventually, they take that idea and apply it to the sacrifice that Jesus made when he was crucified. And, um, Gerard, I'm not doing a great job, no, you, no,
0: Gerard, I agree.
1: Gerard sees, you know, the, the crucifixion is kind of a solution to this mimetic competition that is so destructive. So I do agree that human beings are very imitative, and I do agree that um, there's a kind of interesting relationship between competition and imitation. But I think he just way pushes that theory too much. Um, so, but he has some. Pretty, you know, devoted
0: followers, do you think there's a Do you think there's a relationship between? I I know it's difficult to draw a line all the way through the Hebrew Bible, but do you think there's a Jewish interest in scapegoats? I know he one of his main citations in the Old Testament is he cites Leviticus, where I think we actually get the word scapegoat. Right,
1: so was, the idea of the scapegoat is related to the Jewish the Jewish Holy Day of Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And so the, the community, this is from the Hebrew Bible, the Israelite community believed there was a one day of the year where they were supposed to cleanse the temple. Like Sin was almost like a physical force, almost like radiation or something, and it kind of contaminated. Whenever somebody sinned, it would pollute the temple a little bit, and it would kind of build up over the course of the year and if you didn't have a ritual to kind of cleanse the temple of all the sin that it contaminated it and all the kind of impurity that got in, got into the temple it would become impossible for God to reside there anymore so they had a special day every year called Yom Kippur the day of atonement where the priests would go in and perform certain rituals to um, basically cleanse the temple of sin and um, one of those rituals was taking the communal sins and putting it on a special goat that was sent off into the wilderness. And that's the scapegoat. That's the original scapegoat. Um, so, but now the, then later on in our time, we use the language of scapegoat to, you know, somebody, when you put the blame on somebody who's innocent, um, that's what we mean by scapegoating today, but it comes from this ritual in um, the book of Leviticus that's connected to the Yom Kippur. Um, so that's where the language of scapegoat comes from. And, you know, it's an interesting concept and Christians applied it to Jesus, saw him as a scapegoat in the original biblical sense, a sacrifice that was taking the sin off of people, kind of deflecting it away from people so they would have a chance to you know, not be killed and survive and have an afterlife. Um, so it has a really important and interesting history, but I wouldn't base the whole theory of religion on it.
0: Sure. Um, awesome. Well, I appreciate your time. I guess as a, I'm going to start with your, uh, your article about Gerard, but I uh, would be remiss not to ask you if you could point me in any other direction, <laughs> somebody I might want to talk to or something I might want to read. Um, I reached out to – Bart Airman with no luck, but I have, I have been reading some of his stuff, but I'd be really interested uh, in in maybe what you would recommend.
1: Uh, Yeah, first of all, you have great questions and they cover a lot of different grounds. So there are probably different people to talk to depending on which (laughs) subcategory of question you want to pursue. Um, Is there, is
0: there one you think I should should have focused on maybe that that i might have not known enough to ask the obvious follow up question and just moved on
1: no i wouldn't say that i would say that every question you ask though could lead to a whole semester worth of but <laughs> <Fine>. uh <laughs> so it's really i mean um let me let me say this why do you think about what you're most interested in email me and then i could probably give you like if you're interested in mysticism i would send you one way wanted to know more about the new testament i would send you in a different way cool uh so it kind of just depends on what you're yeah i
0: think i think that mis- the question of mysticism in in any tradition fascinates me right now and uh, i think that there's something about that Essene community i i love this question i don't know if i would ask a relative stranger this question but i love asking some of my friends who might be interested in religion do you think jesus was a really good jew or a really bad jew and I love the idea that, yeah. that a scene community, I don't, I don't know, tr- troubles maybe my answer to that question.
1: Um,
0: so I, I'm Brother having-
1: For the record I'll say Jesus was a good
0: Jew. Yeah. I will say that. Um, and he was not a Christian. He could not have been a Christian, right? Right. And Christians
1: don't exist after him. so-
0: And I, I, I love have, I love Bart Aaron's work on sort of how Jesus became a God. And uh, how, how he, you know, there's all sorts of debates about the son of man, son of God question. Um, I would have, I should have asked you about that, but he makes it really yeah, clear. Cool. Sorry, Airman makes it really clear that he would have never called himself God. He might have said son of God, which I'd love to know what you think that means, but. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, I think that, that that phrase has changed its meaning over time. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think it's, from what I'm, what, kind of what I'm hearing, you might enjoy talking to a scholar of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Hmm. Um, so let me. There's a scholar at NYU, for example, named Alex Jason, who I don't know very well, but he's certainly an expert in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I think this—he's at NYU. He's in the Religious Studies Department. The last name is something like J A S S E N. Um. you know, he might be a good person to talk to. Um, There's, um, you know, there's another scholar at Harvard named Annette Reed um, who's an expert in how Judaism and Christianity related to each other in those early centuries and challenges the way a lot of people think about their relationship. and, you know, she's a very, uh, prominent scholar in the field. Um, don't, don't mention my name. Or she doesn't like, like me all that much, but she doesn't, uh, well, that's a long story.
0: She might like it's that you, uh, that you recommended her. Uh, yeah. um, <laughs> um, well, that'll be my first question to her.
1: <laughs> if you want to, yeah, but there's, uh, uh, but she's, a, she's a brilliant scholar, no doubt. Um, and I mean, there's just a whole lot of scholars, you know. And I think something you would enjoy now that I i know the depth of your interest in, is there's something called the Society of Biblical Literature, which is kind of the major academic society for the study of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, the academic study of it, the kind of secular academic study of it, although there are a lot of religious scholars who attend and they have um annual meetings and hmm. they move from one city to the next and you know but eventually they'll get to philadelphia or maybe you know, maybe they'll be in boston or someplace you can get to um and you might just enjoy those are usually like three-day conferences you might just sign up and go to these sessions and you'll get you know more than enough insight from the different <laughs> scholars that
0: way i'll never ask another question again
1: that'll probably kill any interest you have in <laughs> uh um because there's a lot of scholarship out there i mean there are literally thousands of scholars who do this kind of work and um there's so many different directions so
0: awesome steve you've been super generous with your time thank you so much and and i'll, I'll reach out about that article fascinated to read it
1: Yeah, your curiosity is great. So you you, you hang on to that. That's a wonderful trait.
0: Thank you very much. All right. Thank you again. And uh, I, I hope to be in touch soon. Thank you. Thanks, Steve.